Welcome back to the Heartland Pod. It is Tuesday, June 28th. My name is Adam Summer, and I am your host. Today's pod is a chat version of the pod, and uh, it's a little bit different because uh, it's not a politician or an author or a musician. I've had all of those kind of folks on the show before. Uh, this is actually one of our show hosts, uh, and this is... We haven't done one of these in a long time. Uh, Nicholas Linky was the first one to do that before he was really a part of the show. That's sort of what led him to be a part of the show. Uh, and we've done one with Sean Diller before, but this is Rachel Parker. Uh, Rachel has uh, been a huge part of our show. Uh, joined us back uh, late January, early February of 2021 after uh, finding the show and reaching out. And she and I had some conversations and uh, eventually she joined us and uh, join Sean and I in what is now a, a business venture with this with this media company. So uh, I, I've gotten to know her pretty well uh, over the last year or so. But, you know, it, it takes time to really get to know everything about a person, uh, you know, that you can sort of imagine. And there's still plenty of stuff that, you know, none of us know about the other person. Uh, but we're learning more and more. And one of the things that I learned this past week was about Rachel's personal journey uh, in her 20s with a relationship and then her story of, of getting out of that relationship and, and the choices that she had to make. And uh, we joked about a little bit during the chat that uh, you know, I got a text from her on Friday after the Dobbs opinion had come out, which is, which is not shocking anytime something uh, you know crazy comes out. We usually get a hold of each other because you know we do a political show together. Uh, but it was it was very simple and just said, you know, could I talk on the phone for five to ten minutes? Um, and uh, I, I had some time and, uh, you know, I knew it was going to be a longer call than that. We joke about that a little bit. Um, but I suspected that we were going to have a a pretty deep conversation. We, and we did. And we talked about whether or not, you know, she would want to do it for this purpose and and. She agreed that she wanted to do it and that she wanted to share. And so so that's what we have here for you is it's a very personal story for Rachel. Uh, and, and I posted about this last evening on my own Twitter account that while it is absolutely unique to her as her story, there are, are huge parts of her story that are way more common than you think. I deal with a lot of high conflict type of cases in my practice. Uh, I get calls from folks who uh, have been told that they should call me because of the kind of case that they have. Uh, and it's the kind of case that Rachel, had she not been able to make the choices that she was able to make, likely would have found herself involved with. And it's a pretty harrowing experience to go through when you have to deal with, uh, you know, the kind of things that Rachel dealt with. And I'm trying not to, to, to spoil what, what's coming here. So, so that's, that's the chat for today. Um, and before we get to that, I, I do have a couple of words about this Kennedy versus Bremerton school district, uh, case. This is the, uh, the coach that was uh, praying on the football field. So a couple of words about that, and then we'll get to the chat with Rachel. Before I get to Kennedy versus Bremerton school, just a reminder, you can find us at heartlandpod.com. You can click the link for Patreon to support what we're doing here. Five bucks a month goes a long way to helping us build out these shows and make this a better experience for everybody as we try to change the conversation. Over at heartlandpod.com, click the Patreon link and find us on social media with the Heartland Pod on Facebook, 
on Instagram and on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. We'd love to hear from everybody over there and uh, email us heartlandpod2020 at gmail.com. All right, Kennedy versus Bremerton School District. This came out Monday the 27th. Uh, this coach was uh, praying at the football field, on the football field, uh, after games, and the school district stopped him from doing that, and it went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, this is an opinion by Gorsuch. I've had a chance to uh, read uh, Gorsuch language, and this is this case is right in that zone where I think that the logic applied by Gorsuch uh, in the majority here is not necessarily wrong, uh, but I think that they miss a pretty important point here. Uh, he mentions that there was no evidence of any coercion in this particular case, that there, there was no record made that the coach's conduct was coercive toward the students, and that since there was no coercion that could be shown, uh, that this was not state-sponsored speech. It couldn't be considered school-sponsored. And so because it was his personal expression uh, that the, 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 the constitutional test for whether or not he was violating the Establishment Clause comes down on the side of the coach. And I, I appreciate that logic. And it's not, again, it's not, I don't think it's wrong, uh, but I think that to say that a, a head football coach going right after a game to the middle of the football field and praying is not going to have a coercive impact. You know, I, I have to wonder why there was no evidence about that because anybody who's been involved in high school sports or high school organizations in general, right, we're talking about young folks, right, 14 to 18, 13 to 18. And if you're trying to be a part of that organization and your coach goes out and does something, Right, you're supposed to follow the coach. The coach is the leader. The coach is the example. And I'm not saying that praying is bad. I'm not, you know, I'm, this coach wants to pray. I got no problem with with prayer. I got no problem with belief. I got no problem with whatever your religion is. But to suggest that there's no coercion just just seems, I don't know. I, I just don't understand that. The head coach of the team goes out and does this thing. And it's not even just that he was praying, right? He was making a show about it. And the more, you know, the more the, the media stuff around this shows a very different picture from how they describe it in this case. The media picture shows that the coach was very aware of what was happening and that he was specifically making an example to do it. He was doing it because he knew that it was controversial. This wasn't some just personal exercise for him. So, look, is it school-sponsored speech? That's the question, right? Is it state-sponsored? If it's coercive, it is. That's what the history of this kind of speech is. And here, they're saying that it, just, that it isn't, that this is just part of learning how to live in a pluralistic society. And I guess we'll see, because I suspect that we're going to see some folks with religions that aren't necessarily as acceptable on a Friday night in mainstream America. And they're going to want to start praying at the 50 yard line. And are their prayers going to be as acceptable? And on top of that, if we're worried about whether or not kids are or are not being coerced into speech, 
how is it coercion then if somebody comes on who has different beliefs from the kids in general to the school? There's this huge fervor over whether it's CRT and now it's the, the, the drag shows at schools, which is just bullshit. But, you know, we've got all of these different things getting mashed together on that. And it seems like we're worried about everything that isn't a white football coach in his late 40s or 50s praying at the 50-yard line. That, As long as that's what's going on, then it doesn't matter what everybody else's beliefs are. Seems like a bit of a double standard here. But that appears to be the Supreme Court in 2022. Before I hit play on the portion with Rachel, just a warning for some folks. This does contain sensitive topics. It does contain hard things to hear about. And I want you to know going into it that it could be triggering for some folks. And now here is my chat with Rachel. Let's have a chat. All right. So we're here for Let's Have a Chat. This is, uh, we've never done this before. And I actually had thought about this recently that we should do this anyway. Uh, But this popped up on its own because it just made sense. So uh, for the chat today, Rachel Parker is here and we talked on Friday when the Dobbs opinion came out last week. This is coming out on Tuesday, June 28th. Uh, she and I talked on the phone. Um, I got a text from Rachel that said, can you talk uh, on the phone for five to 10 minutes? Um, and I've known Rachel long enough to know that even if it wasn't because the Dobbs opinion had come out that I was not going to be on the phone for five to 10 minutes. Um, but, <laughs> uh, I, was that a dig? Was that a low-key dig? A I was just, I just know I've, I've come to know you. Um, not, neither one of us is getting off the phone in five to 10 minutes. Yeah. A, we're both, a, we're both, we're both a bit chatty. Yeah. We're, the least. we're yeah. talkers. Um, yeah, we are. <laughs> is that what it said on our report cards? Like yeah. Adam and Rachel are both very social, but they really do tend to talk a lot in class. Yeah. Right. No yeah. shit. That's why, uh, in third grade, I used to think it was a reward. I got to do long division and like long multiplication, uh, on the side all by myself. And it's because I was done. And so I would start to bug people. <laughs> so, so anyway, uh, the point of that is, you know, it, it was a heavy day. You know, the opinion came out early in the morning on Friday. And, uh, you know, you could just feel sort of the pall that was dropping. And when I got that text, I knew, you know, I knew why. And so we reached out and it was exactly what I thought it was going to be. Um, and so anyway, we talked about having Rachel do this today and tell this story because yeah, I, Rachel. Yeah. I just, I just think you have to yeah take from here. Cause I, yeah, yeah. So, so I don't, um, it, I don't really have a lot of friends in Missouri. Um, and that isn't because I don't like people. It's because uh, when um, I, I shared a post with our Patreon folks about kind of the, just unbelievable whiplash uh, crisis that my husband and I have had since uh, 2016. It happened to have coincided with one of the most dramatic periods in American history. But like we would just been like uh, just from one literal shit sandwich to another. Um, so I don't know that many people. So Adam and Sean are really two of the only friends that I have that I know that I can reach out to and have a rational conversation with. I know how they're going to react um, to some extent. And so I know that if I call them, 
and if I'm upset, they won't try to talk me out of it. There's a lot right. of Midwestern people that when I don't, I don't know them particularly well enough, first of all, to, to just interrupt their days and say, can I talk to you? But also I feel like people in, the, in this part of the country have a tendency to be like, well, let's just try to see the bright side. Let's try, and, and I didn't need that shit. I needed somebody who's going to be like, you're right. Let's just sit here and, and explore our grief together. Right. And I've, I've not, we don't talk on our podcast about our personal histories. Very often they come up. Right. Um, our, our current lives come up a lot. Sean talks about being a parent, um, talks about be- being married to a nurse. You talk about being a parent, having a child who's severely disabled. Right. Um, I talk about being married to a person who had a lung transplant, but we don't talk about like the childhoods that we had a whole lot. We, we allude to them. Right. Um, they've been whispered about, but, um, so I haven't ever said the words, uh, I was severely traumatized as a child because it's not appropriate. But if I'm going to talk about the abortion that I had in 1997, at the end of 1997, um, it, it is there is a context there that I think matters. Um, and the reason that I want to, I, I wasn't sure if I thought it was relevant. That was one of the reasons that I called Adam is I just kind of exploded about like, uh, if you listen to the Monday show, um, the life that I have today is possible because I was able to access abortion care in Arizona, where I believe it is now illegal. I think, I think it's already illegal in Arizona. Um, I've I, like the trigger laws happened so quickly that I, I, I literally lost track. Right. Uh, and it was easy and it was, uh, wasn't free. Um, but it certainly wasn't expensive. Um, and, uh, zero people in my personal life tried to talk me out of it. My mother didn't know because we weren't really speaking, but, um, uh, and I didn't tell the, the person who I just terminated in a relationship with that I was having an abortion because he was abusive. Um, so let me go back to that, uh, childhood a little bit, uh, which I don't talk about. And it does set the stage for, you know, you and I talked at length about sort of that parallel thing of. I wound up in what I think is a much better version of, of the home life. I had a really good home life for the most part, but I had consistent contact with the tough part. You basically spent your entire childhood in a, in a, not a bad place necessarily, but a, like, not a, like, not like you didn't have food and clothing kind of place. I think that's important. Yeah. But the kind of childhood where when I was like, I don't know, 10, I was already like, well, it's not like we're homeless. Right. You know, so, so so to contextualize the trauma that I was experiencing as a very young child, I went to like the most extreme examples of being disadvantaged to contextualize my own right. privilege. And it's true, right? Like a friend of mine who had a more difficult childhood than mine once said to me, like, I was I said that, and he said, You can stop reminding me that we weren't chained up in the basement, Rachel. Right. You're right. That's correct. However, dot, dot, dot. So my mother um, uh, turned to alcohol as her coping mechanism, which is a kinder way of saying that she was a high-functioning alcoholic when I was about, I'm not really sure. Um, uh, Alcoholics are really good at hiding. Addicts, compulsive people are very good at hiding their behavior, particularly from their children. So she could have been an alcoholic for much longer than I realized, but it um, became acute when I was about 11. And somewhere in junior high school, I don't know how old I was exactly. I, I, I'm reasonably certain I was in junior high school. 
um, I complained to her about being uh, home by myself too much because she was out uh, drinking. And her way to remedy that was this is this is the, this is how the, the the brain of a pathological narcissist. This works. blew my mind when you told me this the other day. Yeah, it's it's not it's not a fun thing. I don't bring it up a lot. By the way, right. like this part of my life is very healed. I can talk about this in a very clear-eyed way. I can just right. say like, oh, by the way, so my mother's solution to her neglect wasn't to say, oh, I know what I'll do. I'll address the fact that I don't want to be at home by myself with my daughter because I hate my life. I'm depressed, whatever the fuck it was. I don't know. Her solution was to bring me with her to get me dressed up, to make me look like a, a young adult. Um, and I could pass for a young adult cause I was, I, I matured physically very young. I was very, I'm very busty. Um, and so I had the body of like a 20 year old when I was like 13 and, um, I put on a lot of makeup and I'd wear high heels and I'd put on tight fitting clothing and this was all, by the way, I was coached by her boyfriend. All this is true. So that I would look quote unquote old enough. And then they told all me very healthy. Yeah. Oh, super normal, super healthy. And they told me, I guess we probably should have just slapped a big fucking trigger warning on this episode. Um, this is this trigger warning is coming a little bit late. I'll, I'll, I'll preface it before we get to the, I'll, okay. I got it. Yeah. Got it. Got it. Okay. So, so anyway, so I, uh, I, I, they told me, um, don't call your mom, mom, call her Susie and say that you're sisters. And that's when my drinking career with my mother started when I was about 12 or 13. Um, and it didn't end until I was much older. Uh, I don't, I, 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 at some point I was probably 20 or I was over legal, the legal drinking age. But finally I was like, I've got to stop drinking with my mother because she uses that as an opportunity to harass and abuse me still verbally. Um, she yeah. was a fucking emotional terrorist. So that was my childhood. Um, when you, you don't, you don't leave that environment. You jettison yourself from it. And I'm lucky enough to have had parents who had the expectation that I was going to college. And so when I went to college, I didn't go to college. I escaped my mom. My father was relatively absent from my life at the time. So that's where I started my twenties. You do not make particularly good choices from there on out. I know that's shocking to hear, right? Yeah. I know that after a yeah. you're like, you didn't really. Um, in fact, the choices that I made were so much better than I knew they should be that I thought that I'd recovered from all of that without therapy when I was in my twenties, because I was like, well, it's not like I did this. It's not like I'm a, this is what I was said to myself in my twenties. So in my childhood, it was like, well, it's not like we're homeless. It's like, mom smokes crack. It's not like I'm getting molested, you know, like all these like really extreme conditions to justify right. her abuse. I didn't understand that I was, that that was child abuse until I was in my mid twenties. Um, and I didn't understand that it was abuse until after, uh, what I'm about to talk about happened. When I was 20, this is where it gets tough. Cause I don't talk about this very much. Yeah. Um, when I was uh, 20, uh, six years old, um, I entered into, um, a dangerously abusive relationship, uh, that I hate talking about because, um, it was, uh, 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 I was terrified 
And I was in the middle of, um, I lived in Arizona and I moved there to make a film with a really good friend of mine. And um, I allowed this person to disrupt that experience. I was so, he, he was so successful at manipulating me that he told me I almost broke up with him before production started on, on, on our film. And I, I didn't because he told me he was going to kill himself if I did. Which is one of Step the things one, I do this, a, yeah, right, I do this yeah. in my job yeah. all the time. And that is when grown men, because grown men can't pitch fits like a three-year-old. They can't get on the ground and kick and cry and scream because you'll laugh at them. But if they say, I will kill myself, that will get your attention. And now they're a victim instead of you being a victim. And it's just changing that power dynamic. And that is like, you didn't tell me that part on Friday that he'd made the threat. And that like, of course, of course he, he did. Const- of course he did. And he made it constantly. And when you're raised by someone who's abusive, um, as a therapist said to me once, you learn that what love means is someone giving you their problems. Right. right. And that's a really great way to describe codependency. Yeah. And so it felt natural for me to assume emotional responsibility, not just for him. I mean, in hindsight, I did that for a lot of people. Um, not all my friends, but but I did that for a lot of people in general. And it felt good. It felt good to be the person who accepted complete blame and emotional responsibility for other people's um, terrible decisions, um, terrible financial decisions. I was like, I was like a, I didn't know what an enabler was, but I was one for a lot of people in my life. Um, and, uh, he, ah, fuck. I never had admitted this out loud, uh, before to anybody, not even to my friends at the time. So despite the fact that we were sexually active, I was not on birth control. He wouldn't use a condom, which is something else that that physically and emotionally abusive right. men refuse to it's do. It's a control factor. It's a control factor. If I get her pregnant, she can't leave, right? right. And um, I take full responsibility for the fact that we were having sex without protection. The reason I didn't um, go on birth control is because if I went on birth control, then I would be admitting to myself that this relationship was real. And that I, I didn't want to go to a I didn't want to go to a doctor. I think that's the part of it that for a lot of folks would want to shame you for making that decision and are not comprehending what it means to be in that relationship and what it means to be in that mental space where the decision that you're making it's no different than when you're 14, 15 years old doing something that you know to your core you shouldn't be doing but doing it because you think you're doing it for this other person, but they've actually manipulated you to think that way. And that it was not, you You were not making a free decision at that point in time. Well, and I didn't know, like at that time, I didn't have an, ex- I didn't have like executive functioning right. really. It didn't. I was, I was, I, I, I was not a healthy and well-adjusted adult and I didn't know nobody, no non-functioning adult knows that they're a non-functioning adult. Right. Especially I, 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 um, presented the same way that I do now. 
I presented as like a ridiculously intelligent, super funny. Then I was quite, you know, at that point in my life, I was quite attractive. Um, and, uh, I seemed very emotionally fluent. Um, and part of that is because I surrounded myself with broken human beings because that felt comfortable to me. It was to right. be surrounded. So when I looked around me, I was like, well, look at me and look at me compared to them. I mean, shit, I got my shit together. And I wasn't judging those people. I loved those people. But yeah, when you are accustomed to addiction and when you're accustomed to addictive behavior, it doesn't matter what the substance or what the, the, the kind of the, the, the behavior is. It can be anything compulsive behavior is the defining behavior around addiction. And so most of the people that I knew increasingly, as I got older, this wasn't true of my college friends. My college friends were kind of horrified uh, that we weren't living in the same place anymore. Um, we'd, you know, as, as, as one does, you kind of scattered to the four ones after college. Um, and so my college friends were like, where do you, where do you, what's go-? they were really kind of baffled. Right. And it was because as I matured and got further away from kind of the structured environment of being in an institution where people around me were relatively high achieving and um, goal oriented and um, respected me. And like, it, it, I thought that I was going to continue to make those kinds of decisions. And I didn't recognize that suddenly I was in the free world and the free world is not safe for people who are raised by addicts period. Right. And not certainly not, also people that were abusive. Um, so I didn't, I, I didn't want to go take care. I didn't know how to take care of myself and I certainly didn't know how to advocate for myself. And I knew if I went to a doctor, they would ask me questions about my relationship because doctors do that. They say, are you okay? Like by the nineties, if you went to an, particularly if you went to Planned Parenthood, which was the only place that you could get birth control if you didn't have health insurance by the fucking way. If I went to a Planned Parenthood center, those doctors will ask you if you are in an abusive relationship. They'll, they'll still at, they find ways to ask questions about like, are you being harmed? Have you contemplated suicide? Do you feel safe? safe? And I didn't want to answer those questions because it would have been like, no, 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 no. Yes. No, whatever. Um, so, um, I won't go into graphic detail about how much, uh, effort I had to make to, to get away from him. Um, my roommate at the time was so fucking crazy. This was somebody that I was making the film with. That's a whole other story. And, and she ended up being a very supportive friend. Um, uh, certainly throughout my abortion, she did the best she could, but this is how crazy my life was that I, she had a guest house. And this is just, again, this is just to set the table about how isolated I really was as, yeah. as a human being. Um, I lived with her because I didn't have any money, and she did. Um, her house had a guest house that I'd coveted living in. She knew that. It was, it was just a sweet little fucking property. It was this beautiful property uh, in central Tucson. And um, without my consent or knowledge, she... I came home and the two of he was staying with us because he was homeless. And um I came home Adam doesn't know this part of the story. I came home from work and they without my consent or knowledge had talked about his he and I renting the guest house together. Mm. So she made a decision for me <sighs> With my emotionally abusive and physically abusive boyfriend. Yeah. This is someone who she saw pin me against a wall 
and fucking poke me in the chest and scream at me. So in that context, I felt quite helpless and I didn't know what to say. What I should have said was I'm out, but there were lots of complicated reasons uh, that I couldn't, that I couldn't do that. So getting out of that relationship was very difficult not the least of which was because my roommate and closest friend and ally at the time had, had made this decision for me um, without my knowledge. That's so wildly fucked up. Wildly fucked up. Yeah. I don't talk to that bitch anymore, by the way. Uh, we, um, I still did for years, which is crazy um, because I, you know, life is complicated. I loved her. She was my substitute um, abusive mom. Sure. So, and it, it speaks to the point that the guys like this that you're describing are eight, nine times out of ten, charming, affable, capable of putting themselves in situations smart. that would blow your mind. Smart. Usually very smart. Very smart. And not not in a not in a like book smart kind of way, in a can 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 transform at any moment to kind of be what they need to be to fit that moment. And they're very they can read people typically well to a certain point they have blind spots because they're blind their narcissism will always blind them to objective reality Uh, they will always fit everything into the subjective box that justifies their behavior which is why they're very easy to beat in uh in formalized like court settings it's why i i every time i get one of these guys on the other side i'm just licking my chops just like oh my god it's going to be so much it's so enjoyable to go to trial because they're so incredibly blind spotted by their own narcissism that they can't see, you know, they don't see the the first question that I asked them is a setup for the last question that I'm going to ask them. And then in between, I'm going to flip them around backwards and then kick them off the dock with a brick tied to their leg. That's right. That's but right. They'll, That's they'll right. never see that coming. But in this instance, what they can do is weasel into that zone. And then by the time you show up there, he's laid such a thick foundation on your friend that if you say anything to her contrary to that, it's hard to unravel what he's done in that moment in time it, because she's well, she not seeing it real she, time. And this is also someone. So just to, to to talk about how when you are forced to build your own family because you're you build another family because your own family isn't particularly safe or inviting, right? or, or available. I didn't really have, um, I do now have a very loving relationship with my father. Um, I have two sisters that I adore. We're very close. Um, I love my stepmother. Those, those, those sisters during this period of time were children. They were little. I mean, my sister, they're my, my youngest sister is 15 years, my junior. So she was a little girl and my other sister was, I don't know, 14 or something. So you know, it's not like I could have, it's not like there was anybody in my life. My life changed measurably when they became older. I'll say that sure. too. Like when they, as they aged, I suddenly had peers in my family who looked up to me and who respected me. And, um, my self-esteem kind of evolved with them in a lot of ways. Um, I didn't have any at that time at all. And so my friend who I lived with was as abusive as my boyfriend was. It was just the, the, the nature of that was different. Right. And it was very complicated because I needed a family and her, that was the closest that I could kind of get to it. Um, Cause other adults don't partner with you in the same way that a codependent narcissist does. 
uh, healthy adult friends go, well, I'm going to go live my life and you're going to live my, your life. And I was like, no, I need to, I need to be all up in your shit. That's how I know how to exist. And so I found a friend who provided that, um, circumstance for me. So un- untangling that was really difficult. It took, I don't know, probably as long to get him out of my life as it took for him to get in. And it took about six months for me to Cause we were making a film at the same time, by the way, at the same time, right. all this is, all this is happening. I'm producing a film, a motion, like a feature length film. We're like, this is all happening concurrently. Um, I've never felt more out of control in my life. And so, yeah, in the context of all that, I, um, I didn't get on birth control because I didn't even want to have sex with him. So I was having a form of consensual sex that wasn't also particularly what I would describe as utterly consensual either because right. consensual sex within the framework of an abusive relationship is, is extremely complicated. Yes. I'm certain the day that I was, that I, the, the day that I got pregnant was not a day that I, he was constant, whatever. I don't want to, I don't want to get into that, but he was constantly manipulating me um, to have sex with him. And that's so, another one of those, like, I have this conversation a lot, a lot about that, that that sex becomes a tool. It becomes a guilt trip. It becomes a power move. Uh, if you love me, you would. If you cared about me, you would. If you only, you know, put my needs in front of your needs ever, right? It's this childish need that turns into this power dynamic. And it becomes a form of pacifism, almost like, and I don't mean like avoid, yeah, really avoidance of conflict. Sex becomes a tool of pacification. Because it's easier, right? Yeah. It's easier than, it's easier than saying, um, I just, I didn't have anywhere to go. It's not like I could, I was ashamed of myself. It's not like I could, I, my, my other friends, this was a really big anomaly for me. My other friends who I was really close to, who I'm still close to, were out in the world kicking ass. One of my friends at the time was working for the art. My best friend was working for the Arden Theater in Philadelphia. She was founding her own theater company. And I was too ashamed and embarrassed to call her and say, I've made a terrible mistake. I have to stop everything that I'm doing. I need to come live with you. Um, because I didn't want to... Um, uncouple myself from the only creative project that I'd ever managed to get off the ground in my life. And that felt like it was the most important thing that I could do. Um, and yes, my, bu- my boyfriend worked in the film set. He managed to weasel his way onto the film set because my friend who produced the film, um, gave him a job because he was unemployed. Right. So I saw him all the time. So even when I was like living my dream, I was having nosebleeds because I was so stressed out all this time. Not so, to, not to like, no, this is not an attempt to lighten it, um, but if you, if anybody has watched Barry, um, especially season three of Barry, the dynamic. I was thinking about. This oh, that's movie. oh that scene. I couldn't. I almost couldn't. I I think that triggered right. this memory. That's as you were telling me about that. I was like, holy shit! That's like exactly that. Like that is exactly. I know the scene. If you if you watch season three of Barry, um, that happened to me. A lot. A lot. It happened to me a lot. Um, and it was because a uh, pathological narcissist and she was happy to watch it happen because she was jealous of me too. So these two people who were the closest people in my life at the time coordinated constant uh, emotional and psychological harassment of me because they resented my talent as a writer. I'm not saying it was that great, by the way. I'm not saying my talent was that great. I'm saying they didn't have it. Sure. Um, 
and I kind of didn't really have a lot of other um, options at that point. Uh, so I, I was trapped uh, in, in a lot of ways. And, and um, so when I discovered I was pregnant, I had just, he, he'd been stalking me for about a month at that point because I'd broken up with him. I couldn't go anywhere without seeing him. I asked my roommate to change our phone number and she said we couldn't because we were in post-production. Um, our executive producer died of a heroin overdose at the same time. All this is true. Yeah. Um, so the person who was backing our film died of a heroin overdose in the middle of post-production. And I was like, okay, I have to break up with my boyfriend now. And I did. And I managed to get away from him. So after four to six weeks of him like stalking me, um, I discovered I was pregnant. And by then I felt like I'd found my footing a little bit where I was like, Oh, right. I'm not, I can. Okay. I know how to stand up for myself. I know this is in me. So I did. And, um, that same friend to talk about how complicated things are, um, narcissistic people suddenly can become quite good caretakers because there's nothing that a narcissist loves more than being needed. Right. So, um, we were out of production. We were in post-production. The film was being edited. Um, so she was able to take me to get an abortion. And here's where I want to just express how grateful I am. That I could, because if I hadn't, I would have forever been my mother's child that she wanted me to be my mother wanted me to be a broken failure I was well on my way to achieving just that I was well on my way to achieving the permanent status of being a broken woman if I had brought a child into the can you imagine I was living in my friend's attic yeah um he had I can only hope he never became a father he had no business having physical custody of a dog or a goldfish, let alone a human being. It would have been unthinkable. The decision to terminate the pregnancy was instantaneous. Every single friend in my life was like, absolutely. No question. Nobody ever made me feel like I didn't have the right to that. The trauma doesn't come from the actual choice to terminate the pregnancy. That was the easy part. The trauma comes from deciding that that was the moment that I was not going to be my mother's daughter anymore. And I didn't understand how that was going to happen. And I didn't understand how I was going to back out of that. But I did know that nearly having to sire a child with someone who is physically, emotionally, and psychologically dangerous um, was the only available choice that I had to save myself. If I had not been able to make that decision, I would still be stuck in Arizona probably, which is not a place I was particularly happy. I liked living there when I was there, but I was glad to leave. I would not have been able to go back to Los Angeles and kind of put my feet on the ground and be like, what kind of a woman do you want to be? We know what kind of like post-adolescent disaster you were, but now like by that point, by the time I moved back to Los Angeles, it was like a year and a half later. Um, So I was about 29. Um, when I moved, I was newly 29 when I moved back to Los Angeles and, um, it was that place always made sense to me. And so I was able to kind of, that's where this version that you're listening to right now took over. Right. Like 
that broken little girl was like, you take bitch go. I can't, I'm bad at this. Like you go ahead and you go do your adult thing. And I got into therapy and all these other things, like whatever. And had I not had that, had there not been uh, an abortion clinic that I had to call. And uh, like a week later I was able to go in and have the procedure and I was uh, emotional. And the doctor was like, listen, let's go live your life. You're fine. You didn't do anything wrong. Whatever it is that you, whether you have a boyfriend or whatever's going on. Cause I was crying. He was like, you just pick yourself up tomorrow and do whatever it is that you were doing before you came here today and just live your life. Um, and if I hadn't been able to do that, I would be the parent of a child who was permanently settled to a narcissistic piece of shit solely because of the way that my life turned out. Yeah. And I never regretted it. I'd never had any guilt about that. Ever. I would have had so much more complicated guilt about having a child who was raised by somebody who was not prepared to be a parent again. Right. Right. So had that happened, you guys can do the math. Like how long ago would that child have turned 18? It's like, it's like two years or something. Um, so it's a little more than I, that. yeah. So <laughs> where would I be? What kind of human being would I be? What kind of, I don't have to contemplate any of that stuff. Right, 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 right. Doing so is an exercise in futility. It's magical thinking. Trauma causes you to do all kinds of weird magic. What if I hadn't done this? And what if this? It doesn't fucking matter. What yeah. matters is I had the choice. What matter? And, 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 and the likelihood is if you live in most parts of, like, say, Arizona right now, if, if, if Arizona is one, and people can correct me, if yeah, Arizona is one of the. I think it is on the list, yeah. If, if, if you live in Arizona, you can pop on over to New Mexico. You can pop on over to Nevada. You could pop on over to California. Those places are pretty close by. If you have enough money, if you're a college student, whatever, um, you're, you're going to be fairly, I, I would imagine, if you have any level of mobility, you're going to be able to cross state lines and, and, and get access to reproductive care. Um, what happens though to those Planned Parenthood centers where women can go get access to birth control? What happens to their access to those physicians who can ask them if they're, if they feel safer, if they don't, what happens to that woman like me? Because I don't know that I would have had the wherewithal at that time to be able to get a fucking ride. I didn't have a car. Right. And I'm not going to blame her. I'm not going to look back at that 27 year old and go, you fucking loser. Because I had plenty of that going on in my own head at the time. Yeah. So I don't want women to feel like they have to have some story about terminating a pregnancy like I did that's associated with trauma, right? I feel like you should just be able to say, oh, I had one because I, had, I didn't want to have a baby. That's all you have to say. It doesn't, you don't have to have it. But there are so more often than not, people just still don't understand that men will purposely impregnate women so that they are permanently attached to them. And I don't really know that I have anything to say other than that. I think the takeaway that I had from it, hearing you tell it both on Friday and now today is that nothing about your story about getting an abortion, like the actual story of getting an abortion that's not the part that makes you emotional. It's not the part at that all is hard to talk about remotely. It's, it's the, it's the thought of not 
that not having been an option of that not having been available and that you had a you know because and i do it too we both do this everybody who's had some trauma in their life does this where you you blame yourself for decisions even though you know even though now you know and we, we both have reached that point in our lives where like we have the rational ability to look back and know that a ton of like i was self-medicating heavily from like 15 to 20 uh, with with alcohol and uh, and marijuana, mostly alcohol, and looking back on those things and the decisions that were made, uh, I got kicked out of college. Right, like I wasn't making conscious decisions. You weren't making conscious decisions. That abortion was probably one of the first truly conscious decisions you ever made as an well, adult. I I would say I would say I'm not sure that that's about entirely you. true. Yeah, I I think like that's when I certainly reclaimed my physical health because right. I was drinking excessively at that time for sure. Um, I had like, he was the first person, um, to say, uh, to me, like you're an alcoholic. And it was like his favorite thing to like Lord over me. And I was so, I knew he was right. But he accepted um, you anyway. Well, what if he tells my secret? Like, all this right. so I do, I do think like there is something to be said about like that was the moment that I landed. I think when you're, you're so dissociative, and it's you can't explain what dissociation is like to that's someone the right until they word. fucking experience <laughs> yeah, it. You that's don't. The right word. You can't tell people what it's like to be fucking completely checked out because checking out is the way that ninety nine point nine 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 percent of children deal with trauma is to. Boop, and so certainly alcohol facilitated all of that. But I will say not so much the abortion, but the acknowledgement that I had been voluntarily engaged with so much emotional abuse and so much emotional terror in my life ended with me landing in my body. Right. And right. I was like, this body didn't do anything to deserve any of the things that it's going through right now. Yeah. And the only thing that I can do to protect this body is to make better decisions. And in order to be able to make better decisions, I need to figure out why I make the bad ones. Yeah. And I have, um, I like, since we're here, I just want to say to, um, to my friend, Rael, to my friend, Aaron, and to all these people, my friend, Adrian, um, certainly Elliot, my husband, um, to some extent, my friend Patrick, my friend Todd. Um, I have another friend named Sean. Um, all of those people were sources. My friend Christina at the time. Um, all of those people were like, we love you. You know that we're here. And I was fortunate enough to have created a foundation with those kinds of friendships that when I was ready to come back and closer physical proximity to those people, they were like, it's okay. Yeah. Are you ready to stop hating yourself now? Yeah. Will you believe us when we tell you that we think you're awesome? And I was like, yeah, but I'm not sure how I'm going to get to that point. That's like, okay, we'll help you figure it out together. Yeah. So, um, yeah, here by the here by the way here uh, here by the way of college go I so to speak like, um, so I I do want to say if you are in any of those situations if you don't know what to do if you're confused if you're lost, um, 
there are so many more ways right now that you can contact people uh, anonymously to say I need help. Um, Twitter's uh, messaging is not encrypted. So I would say maybe be wary of um, what uh, social me- social messaging apps use and how you use the internet. But use whatever power you have right now to find someone who will help you. Someone will help you. There is someone with who's closer to you than you realize who will help you. They will put you in a car. They will drive you over a state line. They will get you whatever help you need so that you can live whatever life you deserve because everybody deserves to live a life that is defined by them and not the circumstances they inherited. Well, we'll leave it there. Thank you for telling your story. Thank you for sharing with me and the audience. And uh, I'll just say to the to the guys out there who listen to this show, um, listen up, guys, because there's a lot of women that have a lot to say, and we've done a pretty shit job of listening. The Heartland Pod is a production of Midmap Media, LLC. Follow us on Twitter with at the Heartland Pod. With email, you can reach us, heartlandpod2020 at gmail.com, online with heartlandpod.com, subscribe, and please sign up for our Patreon with patreon.com slash heartlandpod. Become a podhead or an official podgressive today and unlock all of our content. See you at the next show.